This is the Sermon Podcast of Lord of Life Lutheran Church in Columbus, Ohio, where we proclaim God's extravagant grace, radical inclusion, and relentless compassion. Join us for worship Sundays at 8 a.m., 9 a.m., or 11.15 a.m. For more information, please visit our website at www.acceptingall.com. We have a reading from Acts. Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription, To an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. From one ancestor, he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live, so that they would search for God and perhaps group for him and find him, though indeed he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we too are his offspring." Since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by art and imagination of mortals. While God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which we will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Holy wisdom, holy word. In this morning's sermon, you will hear the rest of the story on that reading. Grace and mercy and peace be yours through Jesus, risen from the dead. Amen. As Eric gave you a great clue, we're going to talk about that first reading today from the Acts of the Apostles, the 17th chapter. It's a story about the Apostle Paul. And the thing about Paul is that he was the kind of person that uh, you either liked him or you didn't like him. There's very little middle ground with his kind of personality. You don't have to read many of his letters in the New Testament to really start to understand why that is in particular. Um, By personality, he was the kind of person that he never met an argument that he didn't think he could win. Uh, He never entered into a debate thinking that he was not right, even when he wasn't right. And he wasn't always right, that's that's for sure. Uh, His telling women to be silent in church is one example. Wives, be submissive to your husbands, that would be another. He didn't create that, but he certainly propagated it from a place of male privilege. His views on the authority of government, that we should be submissive to those in authority over us, haunt all discussions of global colonization 
as well as the Holocaust to this very day. So Paul had an opinion always, and he had a very sharp tongue and a very sharp intellect, wickedly so sometimes, and he rarely held back in those kinds of discussions. One classic case was in the church in Galatia, when someone in the Galatian church kept pressing that in order to be loved by God, you must be circumcised, you must be circumcised, Paul wrote, well, why don't they just finish the job and emasculate themselves completely? His letters, which is how most people know Paul, are written to congregations, and they all have a kind of polemic about them, a kind of argumentative nature. He's always addressing something going on in the congregation where they are in conflict. And so that's what most people know about Paul. They wrote the letters, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians. But the actual story about Paul himself is not found in his letters, but it's found in the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostle. He is the Apostle Paul. And our first reading today is one of those stories from the life of Paul. And here's, here's where I want to start to make my case in this discussion. I like Paul. I'm one of the people who likes him. I love him. And I don't think he's just trying to win an argument. I think he's passionate. I think he's passionate about proclaiming the good news of God's love for everyone in the world, and that's just an edgy enough subject that it rubs people the wrong way. And more than that, I think Paul did teach us something. I think the church owes a great gratitude to Paul, but I think he's still teaching us things even now. So here's how the story begins. The story begins in Athens not in Ohio, uh, in Athens, Greece. And uh, he's waiting for the rest of his mission team to show up, Silas and Timothy. And he's there a few days by himself and he does what everybody does in that kind of situation. He starts doing a little people watching. He goes to see the important sites, the religious sites, the temples, the shrines. As he watches all of that, he starts to get this sense that these people, these people don't have a focus, that they're, they're searching, they're, they're searching for something. And it seems to him like they're searching for God. Now, searching is one of those things that we all do, right? I mean, you gotta be really careful about this subject because sometimes we say like, well, there's the faithful people and then there's the searching people and that's, that's not what we're talking about. There are people who search for God. There are people who search for meaning. There are people who search for joy in their life. There are people who search for health and, and, and for happiness. Uh, some people look to family and, and, and for belonging, and, and some people look for peace and for quiet, and, and some people are looking to accumulate things, and some people seek to get rid of things, but the truth is that all of us search, and it's all searching, and at some time or another, we all have a feeling that we need to search, because there's something missing. Even religious people feel that way. Even Christian people feel that way. And frankly, I think Paul identified with that searching in the lives of the Athenians. He had already lived a good bit of it in his life. Early on in the story in his life, he, um, at the stoning of Stephen, which we heard a couple of weeks ago, Paul is there. Paul's holding the coats of people while they stone somebody to death uh, who believed differently than they did. And that's what Paul was searching for. He was searching for certitude. He'd done almost anything to have certainty and certitude. He didn't want faith 
And he didn't want hope, and he didn't want trust. He wanted certainty. So Paul identifies, and he, and he sees how they're searching, how they're looking for something. Now, I want to make sure we ground this. Because, yeah, it's not Athens, Ohio, but it is Athens of Greece, a cultural center of the universe at that point. Uh, they, they, they have altars and statues. They have intellectual abilities and historical spiritual practices. They have these systems of, of order and communication and government and politics and military strength, prosperity. This is Greece, cultural civilization. But... They still haven't found what they're looking for. Okay, so they got all of that, but they don't have it. And Paul points out that all they've been able to find is an unknown God. That's it. And Paul knows that feeling from personal experience, and he knows that it doesn't have to be that way, and he wants to share good news with them, good news about Jesus. And that's what he does, and that's what he starts in on. The area of is a debating society. It's a cultural debating society where the great philosophers of the world would gather and debate weighty issues, and everybody's supposed to come reciting what they learned in the past, and Paul gets up, and all he talks about is Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And some think it's just a bunch of nonsense. In fact, the word they use in Acts is he's a babbler. He's a foolish babbler. But in another place, someone says he's a proclaimer of foreign divinities, and that doesn't sound like a big deal to you all right now, and I know that. We live in the land of freedom of speech and freedom of religion. At least we, we hope that we do. Um, but it was pretty significant in Athens because 500 years before that, in that exact spot on the area of Pagus in Greece, Socrates, philosopher, was convicted of that exact crime and punished to death. His crime was impiety, which meant not believing in the gods of the state. And they sentenced him to die, and to die in their presence, they made him drink hemlock, and he died on the very place where Paul is standing talking about Jesus. So this is a historical, emotionally charged moment, and there's real things at stake, and Paul cares about them, and he identifies with their search for meaning and for something more than just an unknown God. And here's where I think there's so much to be learned from Paul. And I want to be clear, I'm not talking about how to win an argument. I'm not talking about how, how to beat the other person, how to, how to get what it is that you want from them, how to cajole or convince or convert. I'm not talking about persuasion. I'm talking about how to share the good news of Jesus in a culture where, like ours, the number one religious affiliation was none, or I don't know. What I want to talk about is talking about the hope that is ours in Christ Jesus and a world that is desperately searching for that exact hope. So here's what Paul does. He actually does three things, but one, one's uh, implicit instead of explicit. First, he doesn't just sit in Jerusalem. He doesn't sit in a building. He just doesn't wait till people come to him. He goes out and he meets people where they are and he talks with them and walks with them and he understands and connects with people. He doesn't stay in one place, he goes out. But from our lesson today, there are two more. Uh, first, he, he does not condemn them. 
You can read this little snippet a dozen times and you're not going to hear a single word of condemnation. He does not condemn anyone. We heard an excellent message last week from, from Dr. Barger that, that Christ came not to condemn the world, but to save it, but to love it. And that when we hear the way, the truth, and the life, we might not be hearing that right. We might want to hear it as the true way of life that everybody can be part of. Now, some would call Paul's strategy of not condemning, they would call it uh, appreciative inquiry. That's what you do in communication study, appreciative inquiry. And what it means is you, you don't suddenly them and us. You, you say, I, I want to appreciate something about your world and your life. I want to understand it. So here's what Paul's done. He's walked around the city. He's explored their diverse religious practices. He took time and energy and place to understand what they believed and why they believed it. He went to their temples. He gathered around their altars to the point that he could read the inscriptions on them. He found out who were their favorite philosophers and who their poets were, even quotes one of them, in him we live, move, and breathe, and have our being, and not just quotes, but he agrees with another one, for we too are all God's offspring. We're all God's children. There's a kind of civility or respect going on in that way of sharing for the other person, for, for their search, for what God has been doing in their life and in their world. Paul doesn't need to condemn anyone in order to share the love of God or the love of Jesus. And sharing the love of Jesus, that's the main thing for Paul. So even with this abrasive personality where he might be quick to do that, Paul does not condemn because it's sharing the love of Christ that matters to him. Paul believes with all of his heart that all of us search and search and search and all of us, because we're human, we keep coming up empty. And God finds us and fills us through the resurrection of Christ. God incarnate, condemned, crucified, uttering with his last breath, Father, forgive them, and his first breath out of the tomb, peace be with you, is the only thing, according to Paul, that satisfies our searching. God finds us and our deepest yearnings in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. A few years ago, a big survey uh, was trying to get at what, what do we actually long for? Um, it was anthropology, and the, the question is, is it the same in every culture? And it's not exactly the same, but it's close. And the first couple of things are always the same, but they're different in different cultures from, as you go down the list. But the point was that, that most every culture yearns to hear three things in their life, three things. One, I love you. I love you, you're loved. Two, you're forgiven, you're accepted, you're included, you're welcome. And three, and this one really surprised me, supper's ready. I love you, you're forgiven, and there's gonna be supper tonight. Mm. Jesus' victory over the grave, if in fact that is true, guarantees that we are loved now and forever, guarantees that we're forgiven now and forever, and invites us to the table, not just right now, but forever and into eternity. God raised Jesus from the dead so that all people might know about God's 
extravagant, radical, relentless love for them. So, how does the story turn out? Um, what happens after this? We only read this little snippet in the lectionary when we gather. I mean, you know that he doesn't die. You probably already figured out that, that much. But, but what do you actually think happens next? I'll be kind of a good, what, what do you think happens from this situation? Uh, for some reason, uh, the lectionary just stopped at that point. There's two more verses, and I wish they would include them. I don't know why they didn't. I think they didn't because it's got some people's names in them that are different from ours and hard to pronounce. So I think they just thought it was easier not to do it in worship. But I missed something really big. This is what it says. When the crowd heard about the resurrection from the dead, some of them scoffed, but others said, we want to hear more about that from you. And Paul does share more, and they do hear more. And some of them believe, and in verse 33, it even lists, including someone named Dionysius, who is one of the leaders of the Areopagus, the debating society, and a woman, which is unusual to write that in public documents, Damaris, and many, many others. And I'll make sure you get the context now. All of this in the ancient world was done in Aramaic, and everything you know about the New Testament is done in Greek, and the people who wrote it down are the people who were there at the Areopagus and heard Paul's testimony. We live in an age when the church seems less and less relevant to more and more people. The world has become not a melting pot, but a salad bowl of spirituality, and every community that we're a part of is the, the same way. And that creates a lot of anxiety for people, and it worries a lot of people. And I can break it down because I've been around a long time. Fewer and fewer people going to church means churches have to change or churches are going to close. So then obviously, if you're concerned about that, you want to change and you want to make the church attractive to others. The last thing we would want to do in a church is drive people away. Last thing we'd want to do is appear prejudiced or intolerant. Church has already done enough of that to our shame. But there's a catch in that kind of welcoming anxiety. Here's what it sounded like in the ancient world. Paul, 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 do you have to talk about the resurrection of Jesus in public, no less? That's like the hardest thing in the world to believe. That's like the biggest leap of faith that one could imagine. Don't you know that that's gonna turn off modern, progressive, rational people? Don't you know it's gonna make you sound superstitious and dogmatic and archaic? Don't you know that you're gonna sound like you're, you're a fundamentalist? See, Paul understood that you don't have to condemn people to tell them how much God loves them. But he also understood that our hope is built on nothing less than Christ and his righteousness. Our hope is built on the resurrection of Jesus. And, and Paul didn't want to turn people off, and he did not want to be bigoted, but he cared. And, and he believed deep in his heart that if, that if Christ was not raised from the dead, this is what he told the Corinthians, if Christ was not raised from the dead, then our hope is in vain, and we are to be more pitied than everybody else. So he shared the story of Christ's death and resurrection from the dead, and thanks be to God, there were people who heard it 
and believed. The resurrection of Jesus, let's take the mega picture for a moment. The resurrection of Jesus is the reason that you are sitting here right now. The resurrection of Jesus is the reason this church existed for 50 years. It's the reason that this church is gonna exist for another 50 years. Christ Jesus has risen from the dead and not even the gates of hell can prevail against a risen Christ. It's a pretty interesting time at Lord of Life Church. Um, we've got a reputation. We're, we're getting accolades from people. Um, and I wanna make sure I say it in the right way. Uh, it is a privilege for us to feed the poor and to house the homeless and to lo- love our neighbors and to care for one another. It's a privilege to disciple young people and young adults and to partner with others in the world for the sake of good. And it's, it's nice, it feels nice to be noticed that we welcome strangers and we love our neighbors and we speak up for those who are on the margins and that everyone is loved and accepted. That feels good, it feels really, really good. And it makes a lot of sense out there to people. But here, in this place, we stake everything not on being good people and not on doing nice things and not on acts of mercy. I'll be real candid, atheists do some amazing things in this world, sometimes better than we do. And all of us are God's children, we're all God's offspring, whether we do them or whether we don't do them. Here, in the church, we stake everything on Jesus rising from the dead. It's our one foundation. It's what we're searching for. It's the source of all of our hope. It's the reason we do what we do. It's why we don't give up. It's why we persevere. It is exactly as the angel said on Christmas Eve, it's glad tidings of great joy for all people. It's the very best thing we know. It's the very best thing we can share with others. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So, hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Hallelujah, Christ is risen. Christ is risen indeed, hallelujah.